Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the conversation. I am so excited, as I am every time, because we have some of the best guests in the world. And today, I have one of my sister girlfriends, the one and only Marianne Williamson. She is an author, a thought leader, a spiritual leader, a thought leader, an activist, a champion. And many of you should know she ran for president in 2020, just shook up the whole thing. They wasn't (laughs) expecting what she laid down. And we are so fortunate to have her here with us today on TYT, The Conversation. And what a great way to start off our new year. Marianne, how are you doing? I'm doing really good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Nina. It's always great to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you and to be, you know, we're 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 not in the same room, but we're feeling each other's presence. I'm so glad to be with you. Tell tell us what what tell us, share something with us that people may not know about Marianne Williamson. Well, I haven't exactly hid anything except, you know, private things that, you know, nobody's business. But I do think that when I ran for president, there was Clearly a well-crafted mischaracterization, a caricature of me that was very much not who I am. I think that anybody who has chosen to read my books or actually look deeply into my work knows that. But um, I'm not a silly person. I'm not a I'm not somebody who has ever in my career walked around in cut velvet talking about crystals or writing about crystals or um, you know, I've had a very a serious career. I've worked. Um, I founded AIDS organizations. I raised millions of dollars. I was very much a serious AIDS activist. I founded an organization that has uh, fed over 14 million meals to homebound people with AIDS and other, um, other, you know, serious life-threatening illnesses. I have founded other organizations, peace organizations. I've done anti-racism work, I've done poverty work, a lot of poverty work. I was a non-denominational minister at a church in Detroit for six years. I've, um, I've, I think some people have this kind of silly image that's for whatever reason, I mean, we know what reason it was created, but for whatever reason, some people have pretty much chosen to hold on to it or whatever, whatever. Yeah, well, that's you know that's their loss, and it just pains me that you have to kind of go through and explain this. I think was your the pride was it Project Angel, Angel, Angel Food, yeah, Angel Food, yeah. But you know, Nina, you and I have discussed this personally before. You have taken your own acid bath, you know. People throwing stuff at you with your congressional run, etc. I think that's one of the things that you and I have shared. And I think in one conversation we had, we were talking about the fact that in ways that you can't even put your finger on or even articulate. I don't know about you, but going through that sort of informed me of something, created certain antibodies. Um, I think that you and I will both look back at those experiences years from now and know that they were they helped us grow some skin we needed, some armor, I don't know. Um, I think it's one of the reasons that you and I understand each other. Yeah, and you know a lot of times when you're going through the fire, 
you don't necessarily mm-hmm. understand the why in the moment, but as things become clearer and you're out of that immediate situation, you begin to reflect and put the pieces to the puzzle together as to why you were being built up for, I would say, another assignment. And something that you and I, you know, I think another reason why we connect so much is because of the spiritual side. As you know, I come from a family from the Black Liberation theology. My mother was a preacher and often joked that she made us go to church eight days a week. But my mother was serious, <laughs> you know, about 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 church. And certainly as I have matured as a person, I was able to discern, you know, as you get older, you're able to discern things. And to me, one of the most fascinating and beautiful parts of what my mother tried to impart and did impart into my siblings and myself is this sense of obligation to service and to, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you and just the more beautiful tenets of religion because you and I both know religion can be used either way. And uh, oftentimes it is used in in, uh, ways that are not edifying. But that is really, to me, one of the things that link us. And, you know, Mary, I was, I was having a conversation about you just just even last night. I don't know if your ears were burning, but one of the things that on that presidential stage, I forget exactly what the question was, but it was something about you know, what is the greatest need in, of, of the hour? What, do, what, what, do our, what does our country need in this moment? And I think you said love. And, and people did not understand that. Like you were speaking on a level in many instances, bringing your unique view and your unique skill set to that stage. You were speaking in, in a prophetic way. And some people were not ready for what you were laying down. But you did. You, you said love. And, and, and my God, have you ever been right? We need that. Well, I think, you know, Gandhi said the problem with the world is that humanity is not in its right mind. Come on. And we're, we're insane. What's going on? The violence towards the earth, the violence towards each other. Um, we're, we're on the brink. We're already in a state of emotional and psychological civil war in this country. If, if we think forgiveness isn't relevant, you're not looking at what's going on. And yeah. we need, and I, and I think that we need to remember that whether you're on the right or the left, no matter you're rich or poor, black, white, brown, no matter that that spirit of love that is within each of us is the only field that we can meet on. You know, the, the Rumi poem, out beyond all ideas of good and bad, right or wrong, there is a field, I'll meet you there. Anybody who thinks that that's not relevant today, they're becoming the fringe perspective. Anybody who thinks that we're going to fix anything going on in our democracy even, only by addressing the outer symptoms without the deeper cause, um, that's the politics of the past. There's a world that's struggling to be born here. There's one world that's falling apart and another world that's struggling to be born. The world that's falling apart, it's the image of the fall of Rome. It's happening. The entire system is falling apart. But at the same time, there's this birth, regeneration, redemption, resurrection, repair that's trying to to come forth. And I think that in order for that to happen, it's internal dynamics as well as external occurrences that are going to be necessary. Dynamics like courage. You and I talked the other day about encouragement, 
the courage yeah. to do what's next. You know, um, Martin Luther King said, "We, in order to uh, save the world, repair the world, whatever it was, he said we're going to need a quantitative change in our circumstances and a qualitative change in our souls." He said it's time to inject a new dimension of love into the veins of human civilization. And I don't think anybody called him new age, you know what I'm saying? That's right. You know, I mean, he, he and he talked about power and love, Marianne, going together and that you really can't have one without the other and be in true service to humanity. Certainly I'm paraphrasing him, but I do agree with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Because he said one is sentimental, you know, it's empty. You got to have both. And yeah. yeah, he said power without love is reckless and abusive and love without power, I think he said is weak and anemic. And, and anemic, sentimental. I yeah. think so, yeah, yeah. sentimental, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's true though, Putting, I mean, doesn't that make so much sense? Well, it makes sense from any kind of holistic whole person perspective. You know, it's the 21st century now and the mental paradigm that dominated within the 20th century is now giving way. The 20th century mindset was different than the 19th century. The 21st century mindset is different than the 20th. The 20th century was was very mechanistic. It, it's like this Newtonian model of the world is this machine. And if you have a problem with the machine, you just tweak the pieces. Well, clearly, that did not solve all the problems of humanity. That materialistic Western scientific material model, it solved a lot of problems, but it also created many others. Because if the mind is separated from heart, from ethics, from mercy, from compassion, from justice, then it's power that is, as Martin Luther King said, reckless, abusive. It's yeah. violence. And and yet this realignment of the mind and the heart, this is the 21st century, this is our only hope. This is this is the path forward that we that we realign the heart and the mind, the external powers with the internal powers like devotion and reverence and forgiveness and mercy, and that yeah. and to to give that force to create a politics around that. This is that that is what the civil rights movement was. That's what the uh, the Indian uh, struggle for independence was. Um, this is not some airy fairy idea. This, in fact, was the core of the two most powerful political movements of the 20th century, namely the British leaving India and the dismantling of segregation in the United States. Amen to that. And it was because of love, you know, that these movements took place. I mean, people might not have expressed that explicitly, but when you distill it down and peel back the layers, Liberation is about love, and and I found Mary, uh, Mary, and I had the opportunity while you were talking to be able to find this magnificent quote from Dr. King, which I am so ashamed that I don't have memorized quite yet. But these were the words: "Power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands, keyword demands of justice." And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. Oh My God. You know, it's interesting, Nina, because you said just now, you said they may not have come out and said it. He did come out and say it. Gandhi did come out and say it. It's just when I say it, everybody says woo woo, but these guys did come out and say it. So, you know. 
They did. I really meant that people in the in the movements themselves might not have kind of grasped onto it. But you know, there are double standards for women. Obviously, uh, we definitely. What a thought! What a what thought. thought! Yeah, no, but you 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 lit the world afire, and there's nothing anybody can do to take that away from you. And of course, when you are uh, really getting at the heart of the matter, there are always going to be naysayers out there to try to detract and distract from what the message really is because they don't want people to, to grab on. You know, what What are, I think we've been talking a little bit about this, but if you had the name, I don't even want to limit you, but what are some of the most pressing issues of our time? Well, you and I have already talked about the internal issue of our needs to reclaim our hearts. Externally, you and I are certainly aware, certainly here in the United States, the undue influence of money on our political system is the cancer that underlies all the other cancers. And yeah. we have this as, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. There is a matrix, it's a corporate aristocracy. Uh, insurance companies, big pharmaceutical companies, big oil companies, big agricultural companies, chambers of commerce, uh, big chemical companies, gun manufacturers, and of course, military uh, military contractors. And they form a matrix of corporate power that has turned our government into little more than a system of legalized bribery. And our government now, uh, on a behavioral level, does more to serve the goal of short-term profit maximization for these huge corporate entities than it does to serve the goal of the health and the well-being and the security of the people of the United States, the planet, and by definition, even righteous in any way ethical behavior towards people around the world. That's that that's a perilous path for our democracy, and it's a perilous path for our species. And this has got to be the year when we push back in a more meaningful way. And just because that is the reality does not mean it has to be, you know, just because that is happening now doesn't mean, just because it's our present does not mean it has to be our future if people are willing to stand up and, and take collective action. And that's such an important point because you see a lot of cynicism out there, which is just an excuse for not helping. A lot of nihilism, a lot of people saying the opposite of what you just said, Oh, we can't fix it. Uh, obviously, the abolitionists. Uh, ended up successful, the women's suffragettes ended up successful, the civil mm-hmm. rights movement ended up successful. Did it take struggle? Yes. Did it take perseverance? Yes. Did it take courage? Yes. But we are we are not a country only with a legacy of slavery. We're also a country with a legacy of, of abolition. We're not only a country with a legacy of the institutional suppression of women. We're also a country with the legacy of women's suffrage movement. We're not only a country with the legacy of segregation, we're also a, a, a Country with the legacy of the civil rights movement. Let's not be the first generation to wimp out on doing what it takes to push back on these forces that have always been with us. They were inherent in our founding. The dichotomy between the most enlightened principles that had ever formed the founding of a country and the most violent forces of perpetration of transgression against them. I mean, you had, that's always been with us, it's in our DNA. I mean, this country was founded, the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, not only infused that document with the highest, most enlightened ideals, but 41 of them were slave owners. It's always been with us. So every generation simply plays it out. Some generations push back more, some generations push back less, and it's all this journey towards a more perfect union, which we've never achieved. 
But we're not, you know, sometimes people act like our other generations owed us something. Other generations were, were trying to stay above water with the challenges that they had. And I think we need to now think in terms of rising up to the challenges that are in front of us. I mean, it's a journey, it's not a destination. And I think sometimes we think of when we say justice, people think of it as this prim and proper and perfect (laughs) way to set crooked paths straight. But the very notion of justice is gritty and dirty and sometimes painful. Do right, walk humbly, love justice and Judaism. That's the core principle to walk humbly before your God to do justice, to walk with justice. Are you okay, Nina? To do justly, it's, um, we have taken words like justice, mercy, forgiveness, even democracy, equality. And we treat them like they're these quaint concepts that, oh, you, you're not, we can't take them seriously. That level of cynicism, the fact that any of us ever buy into that, is very, very dangerous. We should not apologize no. for caring, caring about big words. No, we should not apologize. And thank you. Many people know I've been battling a cold for the last three weeks and I had a little cough and spell there. But Marianne being the person she is, are you okay before we go any further? And I love you so much for that. Marianne, do you think, I mean, a lot of the examples that you just gave from abolitionists that suffered to the suffragettes movement, to any great movement that requires humanity to look at itself and make a change for the better, requires sacrifice. Do you think that we today understand the notion of sacrifice for the greater good? I think that if we had leadership that said to people, Sacrifice for the sake of your country. In a righteous way, we would. I think, for instance, let's take environmentalism. If we had a president, for instance, who said, in order for us to make this change, in order for us to shift from a dirty economy to a clean economy, we're going to need these external changes, but we're also going to need some changes in personal behavior. And I'm calling you as a patriotic America to make those sacrifices. You know, Nina, during World War II, my mother would tell us stories. You know, my father fought in World War II. That generation of men, they came home and didn't talk much about what they'd been through. But the women talked about what they went through. And my mother would talk about the rationing of food, the rationing of items, what they went through. But they didn't even think twice about it. It's what they were doing as patriotic Americans. So yes, I think the American people would. Sacrifice for the greater good. Absolutely, I think that. You know, what I felt when I was running, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, I saw, and I know you have seen, both of us have seen from the actual, you know, being inside the belly of the beast of the electoral system, that the system is even more corrupt and vicious in ways than we might have even thought. But the people, the voters are even better, more noble, more dignified, smarter, more intelligent, more ready to change this country than we might have even thought. So yes, I absolutely do, but I think this is where leadership comes in. And I think that when you have a political establishment, leadership establishment that is um, uh, so based on um, just serving the needs of, of um, it's corporate donors, then it's not going to be talking to people 
the individual voters about nobility because it doesn't know anything about nobility. It's an animal that is so disconnected from um, the better angels of our nature. The system itself benefits and so systems are controlled by people. Cuz I think a lot of times when we say the system, it kind of divorces it from the human element. And so it is important to me, I, I believe that as we teach the lesson and we share these ideas, that people understand that the system as it exists today does not have to be the system of tomorrow. And so what that means in order for us to get that deep seated change, we have to have leaders, whether it's political leaders, thought leaders, activist leaders, citizen leaders. We need leaders who are willing to force a systemic change. It's not gonna happen by by accident or by osmosis, it the status quo must be forced to change. And I think some people are uncomfortable with trying to force the system to change. Well, the life of real sacrifice is taking the that, that's the life of sacrifice, of playing small at a time like this. That's a life of sacrifice, sacrificing the God-given talents that we have to speak up when things need to be said. That's the life of sacrifice. And I think that we need to really take a leap forward this year. You know, We need to stop thinking just in terms of influencing those people. We think need to think in terms of replacing those people. Um, like you said, it's not just a system, it's people. And <laughs> you and I need them, we could name names. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And they need to be they need to be voted out. It's as simple as that. Yeah. They need yeah. to be more than influence. They need to be voted out. And that's what we all need to be very concerned with in this coming year. And very clear. So you are a thought leader, a spiritual leader, an activist. Do you ever find that those titles, those roles, those missions, are they ever in conflict for you? No. No, in fact, all of my activism emerged from um, my role as someone who uh, was working, talking, uh, um, lecturing, writing about spiritual themes. But the highest spiritual theme is that we love one another. That doesn't mean anything if you're ignoring the sufferer that is standing in front of you. And so when I first started lecturing on A Course in Miracles, It was at the same time that the AIDS epidemic exploded onto the scene. That's when I became a nonprofit activist. You you couldn't like, oh, let's talk about love and ignore your sarcosis. You know, we're not going to talk about love and ignore the fact that your neuropathy or or that you were just diagnosed with the virus. So to me, they have always worked together. Now, in terms of electoral politics, I had always been involved just as a citizen. But what started to happen about 20 years after my lecturing and my work with nonprofits started was that I began to see, Nina, how much of the suffering that I was seeking to be present for was a result of bad public policy. It wasn't something like a disease that, you know, like AIDS or something. It was poverty, joblessness, homelessness that was a direct result of things that were happening in state houses and in Washington. And then those people would have the audacity to say to people like me, I hope you can make them feel better. 
And especially when they would say, uh, you know, they're really, it's a mental health crisis. Can you help with that? I said, no, you stop driving them crazy. It's your policies that are making people so desperate. It's your policies that are making people live in these situations. Don't just put them on the lap of people like me and psychologists and clergy, etc. And that's when I knew that there, there needed to be a step into um, uh, uh, another uh, field where you need to say it. You need to go to the. You need to go to the cause. We need to realize how much of the despair and the suffering of millions and millions and millions of people in this country is a direct result of bad, selfish, greedy public policy that is nothing other than the massive transfer of wealth and power into the hands of a very few Americans. So no, it is my spiritual convictions that led me yeah. to know I could not be quiet in such a situation as this. Come on, I'm so glad that you were not. And these are policy choices, and these choices can be changed. And you know, the great Dr. Noam Chomsky, basically to the point that you made about the the wealth inequality policy choices wrapped into tax codes and being able to bribe politicians. He said it's flat out robbery that the transfer of wealth from the poor mm-hmm. and the working poor and the middle class is flat out robbery. And I totally agree with him. Oh my God, Marion, we must do this again. But there is an article you wrote, it's called The Terrifying Prospect of Making a Run of Freedom. And I wanna close our segment with a quote from you. You said, problems that confront us now from environmental degradation to mental and physical health challenges, challenges to systemic economic, racial and social injustice reflect a basic flaw and how we collectively function as human beings. Many have argued that every problem is a spiritual problem and it's true. Something is fundamentally askew in how we perceive ourselves and the meaning of our lives, of our lives on the most basic levels. And that is the root of the problem that beset us. The spiritual path is the path of the heart and a detour onto another path, a path devoid of reverence, devotion, mercy, and love has led our species to such a perilous point that we could literally self-destruct should we not change direction. And that is the message of our conversation tonight with the one and only Marianne Williamson, that we have a choice. We can and we must change directions. Marianne, I love you and thank you so much for your courage and in the words of Mother Jones and all that you do, never be ladylike. <laughs> That's what she said, you know. I oh love you, God. Nina. I love you. Thank love you so you. much. Always wonderful to talk to you. You as well.